And I want to welcome you to Sycamore View this morning. I'm so glad you're here, whether it's your first time or you've been here for the 40 years of the existence of our church. I want to welcome those who are joining us on live stream today, wherever you may be. We're thankful you are with us. I showed that video a few years ago. It's one of my favorite videos. And it's one of those things where I like, I want to help you know that God is using you in ways you may never know. And God's going to do things in you and God's going to plant seeds through you. And there's going to be fruit that comes from your life and your ministry that you may never know about. But I also want you to know that I think God wants you to be aware of the ways God wants to use you in your life. So there's God, God's doing things in you, whether you want it to be done that way or not. That's just how creative and wonderful our God is. Yet God is also wanting to make you aware of ways God is eager to work in your life. So as you encounter Jesus today in some kind of way, I hope you're asking, what does this mean to go throughout your life to extend the grace of God to people everywhere you go? We're in the book of Hebrews. I ask you to open up to the book of Hebrews this morning. As you get, as you get there, maybe you've heard of the great evangelist D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was a, one of the greatest evangelists in uh, America ever. Thousands and thousands of people have come to the Lord through his ministry and his effort. He was an evangelist around 150 years ago, so maybe only a few of you in this room are left who went to one of his revivals back in the day. Uh, he died around 1890. He ministered for decades. Or 150 years ago, around that time, 1871, he was preaching a revival in Chicago. He was in Chicago, and he was going to do a seven-week series on the life of Jesus. So he's going to show up at this church every night for seven weeks and just walk people through the story of Jesus. So week one, he talked about the birth of Jesus in the manger, and then he came back week two and talked, think about the miracles of Jesus, and then he would do like Calvary. So he's just walking people through the story of Jesus. It was week five when he stood up in front of this church, and there were people there who were members and they had confessed Jesus before and a lot of people who were coming there who had never made a confession before at all. And D.L. Moody knew like he had a passion and a heart for those people because he used to be one. He was raised a Unitarian, so he wasn't raised a Christian. And then he became a Christian later on in his teen years by a Bible class teacher who invested in him and showed him the ways of Jesus. So that night, his message was, what do you do with this Jesus who was called the Christ? That was his theme. That was the question. And he felt like in that room, the power of God was present upon the people. God was pressing people to make a decision. God was, he felt in the moment, God was even pressing him to call people to make a decision for Christ or to rededicate their lives to Christ. But instead, he had what he calls the greatest regret in his ministry. Is when he ended that message that night, he said... I just want to encourage you to go home and think about this for a week and come back next Sunday and we'll talk about what it means and like what do you do with this Jesus who is called to Christ. And in that moment, the fire bells rang in Chicago, which became known as the Great Fire in Chicago where fires would rage for 27 hours and 300 people lost their lives. 90,000 people were left homeless and a whole city was left in ashes. And he would go on for years, 25 years later, he was getting close to the end of his life. He reflected back on that day and what he said about it was this, I've never seen that congregation since and I have a hard work to keep back the tears today. This 22 years have passed away and I will never meet those people again until I meet them in another world. But I wanna tell you one lesson I learned that night which I have never forgotten and that is when I preach to press Christ upon the people, then and there I try to bring them to a decision on the spot. 
I would rather have my right hand cut off than give an audience a week to decide what to do with Jesus. And I think he's speaking both for those who've never made a confession for Christ and also to those who aren't really sure what they're doing with Christ. Because maybe there's somebody in this room and you've never made a confession for Christ. You've never been baptized into Jesus. And I would encourage you and I've prayed and I'm hoping that the power of God will come upon you today to know that there's no place you can go that you can run from the grace of God. And because the grace of God can come and find you, no matter where you've been or what you've done, that grace is inviting you into a whole new kind of life and it's available for you. And I hope that everybody here who's confessed Jesus is the Christ and the Lord of your life would also know that Jesus is still inviting you into deeper places with him. And I think the book of Hebrews gets at this. There's a good chance that Hebrews is written to a church and Hebrews isn't written to a lot of people who've never confessed Christ before, yet the impact of people trying to live out their salvation has an impact on how many people hear about the message of Jesus. So the author of Hebrews, or maybe it's better to say the preacher of Hebrews, because it functions more like a sermon, is encouraging people to live into their confession. Now, the preacher in the book of Hebrews, the author, whoever it is who put Hebrews together, has a deep love for this church. So it's not like I'm a preacher and I'm writing to some church I don't know anything about and like Topeka, Kansas. Let's just choose a place. It's, it's like me who've been with you now for almost 12 years and I have a deep love and a passion for you. So I stand up here with the love for the people I get to preach in front of every week. And whoever that person is, that author, that preacher, has a deep love for this church. So when he writes even hard things, it's coming from a place of deep love, wanting people to live into the maturity of God and salvation of God. So here are a few places in Hebrews that show this. In Hebrews 5, 12, he's saying, in fact, though by this time you should be teachers... You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. And I don't think this is coming from a place of condemnation, but a, but a teacher, a pastor who deeply loves the people and wants them to live into the confession of God. In Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, there's a call for the whole church to see that how we live today impacts how we live tomorrow. Let us hold on swervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promises faithful, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Two verses I keep coming back to in this series, and if, if you are a person who writes notes and hangs them on a mirror, you reflect on verses, I encourage you to reflect on these three over the next couple of months. In Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And Hebrews 10.39 says, But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. So whether you're in the room today, and you've studied the Bible, and you've read the Bible, and you've been in church most of your life, or if you were here today, and this is your first or one of your first Sundays to ever be in church, and you have no clue in the Bible where the book of Hebrews is, I hope there is something said today that can impact you. And what happened to that church and the people in the book of Hebrews is something we struggle with today too. It's not that they didn't stop believing in Jesus. It's that they quit practicing their confession. It's not that they didn't have a confession anymore. It's that they weren't acting upon it. 
one of my mentors, Randy Harris, I remember him saying to me almost 20 years ago, he said, Josh, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is complacency. That faith is a belief put in action and complacency is a belief that we have, but we quit, quit acting upon it. Um, there's uh, editing has taken on a whole new form for us who live in the 21st century. Some of you, especially those of you older than me, and I know that because I've seen my parents and I've watched them go through some graduate training back in the 80s. And, and if you ever had to type on a typewriter, type a paper on a typewriter, you knew how hard it was to have to go back and correct things. It's a lot easier today to edit things. You write a text message, you spell a word the wrong way, it may auto-correct for you. Microsoft Word or Publisher, PowerPoint, whatever it is you use will show you if a word isn't right and even give you suggestions to choose something that may not be there. There's a phrase that my kids will probably never use and if they do, it's gonna be because I try to explain explain it to them and it's a Kodak moment. (laughs) My kids probably are never gonna use the word Kodak. It's not really a word we use much anymore. But back when I went to church camp, I remember there were times my mom would give me a camera. She would trust me with a camera, like one or two years she did. And she would say, you can go take pictures. But the way it worked is I was given a roll of film, maybe two rolls of film. And the way a roll of film works, because it isn't digital, is I had 24 pictures to take for a whole week of church camp. And it's not like I could take 24 pictures of the same thing, choose which one I like, delete the other 23, and have 23 pictures left. I had 24 pictures left for the entire week, so I better pick my shots, right? But now you have access with our phones that just with the turn of a lens, with a few buttons, we can edit things and make it into something that it really wasn't. Right? I mean, let's just move through a couple of these. I mean, this is just the power of editing the day that doesn't even take a professional to do things like this. There's before and after shots. You can see the difference, right? Go to the next one. I mean, you have creation. You can do these with sunsets. Instagram allows you to change backgrounds and light and things like that. And it's even to the point now where we can edit out, if you go to the next one, we can edit out wrinkles. We can edit out freckles. We can edit out double chins or triple chins to try to make a picture into what you want it to be, right? Um, If I were to ask you today, of the three to five moments in your past that you would love to edit out of your life, I bet most of you wouldn't need 10 hours to decide what the three to five are gonna be. Maybe you would need 10 hours or so to reduce 50 down to three to five. And if I were to ask you today, like, what are the current issues going on in your life that you would love to edit out of your life? I don't think it would take you a long time to think of those either. Now, one of the challenges for the church today is we see this picture of Jesus. And whether it's reading about Jesus in Hebrews or in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or you hear a preacher, or how you were taught to think about Jesus growing up. Whether we like it or not, what happens and what we have to fight against is we try to edit Jesus in our lives to make Jesus into what we want Jesus to be. So in our culture today, you have Rambo Jesus, which is like the Jesus who's pro-strength and pro-power or pro-guns. And then you have hippie Jesus, and hippie Jesus is all for peace and just living a life where you're nice and you're kind and anything goes as long as we're together. And you have pro-life Jesus and social justice Jesus, and we could keep going on with the different ways we can edit Jesus into what we want it to be. And in the book of Hebrews, they were editing Jesus too. Because any time when 
Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 talks about fixing your eyes on Jesus. Anytime that we lose that focus of Jesus, we minimize Jesus. Therefore, our lives aren't being built on the allegiances to Christ, yet we still want to put Jesus as a mascot on top of whatever it is we're trying to live. So Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 begins like this, and I've read this and we studied this last week. It's one of the most beautiful statements about Jesus in the entire Bible, and it's, like, and it's this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purifications for sins, he he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And we would all say amen to that, right? And then you get to verse four and it's this. So he became as much superior to the angels as his name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Let's stay right there just for a moment. Because I know some of you, since I've been preparing for this series, and I'll let you know, let you know I was going to preach through Hebrews. Some of you have tried to read through Hebrews. Maybe you've made it through it. And my wife is a student of the Bible She's read the Bible. Yet Casey even came to me a few weeks ago and she's like, uh, this Hebrews 1 stuff. Like this guy gets caught on like talking to like 12, 13 verses about angels. What's going on with angels? Because I don't think for Sycamore View our problem is that we're worshiping angels or making too much about angels. But Hebrews 1 begins with angels and it can confuse people. And you're like, man, what is this book? And then you get to chapter 4 through 10 and it's talking about blood sacrifices and high priests and all this. And, and it's easy to get lost and confused. So I want to try to make sense out of chapter 1 verse 4 because I think if I can make a little sense out of this, I, it'll make sense of a lot of this book for you. Whether you've read this book many times or it's the first time you've ever opened it. In verse four, there's a word that shows up that doesn't show up much. And if you go to the next screen, it's this word kratone. It's that word superior. Some of your Bibles may have that it's better. Now, this word kratone can be a word that's used to compare things. It's about comparison. So in some of your versions, it's that, so he became better than the angels. So the way some people may think about kratone or comparison is we compare things and then we argue which one is better. So one way we can think about this is when I go to Central Barbecue, I like Central's ribs and I like Central's wings, but I think the ribs are a little bit better than the wings. For some of you, we could have a debate and an argument and you may think that you're right, yet other people think they're right. What's better, Gus's fried chicken or Uncle Lou's? Now right there, you may think you know which is right, but we could at least talk about which one we think is right. You're comparing them. Which is a better venue for you? You like going to the Cannon Center to see something or you like going to the Orpheum? You may have your favorite, but you could at least argue. Kraton is not a word that's talking about comparing things where one may be a little bit better than the other. Kraton is that whatever you're trying to compare, one is far superior. It's more prominent. It's not even close. This is like, whether you like it or not, Alabama Crimson Tide or Clemson Tigers and the Memphis East High School freshman football team playing each other. This is like the city of Memphis and the city of Nashville, all right? It's not even <laughs> close, right? <laughs> just, just messing, kind of, with most of you. It's a huge gap. 
So right here in chapter one, verse four, what this person wants you to know who's writing this or preaching this is, we got Jesus who is more superior than angels and anything else you wanna put in place of angels, he's superior to it. It's not even close. It's not a debate. It's not that he's a little bit better. Now, this word kraton is a word that shows up 19 times in the New Testament. 13 of the 19 show up in the book of Hebrews. And let me just show you a few of these places where this word is used or the idea is used throughout the book of Hebrews. In chapter one through three, uh, chapter one, verse one through three, we read about how Jesus is better than a prophet. So you think about throughout the Bible, how God spoke to people. Jesus speaks in a better way than all those people. He's better than the prophets. And now you're gonna read through the rest of chapter one how Jesus is better than angels. And then you get to chapter three and what you read is Jesus is better than Moses who's known by many to be the greatest character in the Old Testament. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the high priest. Because in Hebrews, Hebrews is trying to think, okay, who is it throughout the story of God who is the person who could give you access to God and it was the high priest. Hebrews talks about Melchizedek, a guy who hardly even shows up in the Bible. We'll get to this in a few weeks. But Hebrews is trying to find the person in the Bible who seemed to be the greatest high priest that you could come up with. Jesus is better than that. It's not even close. And then after that, Hebrews starts getting into like some ideas and theology that Jesus is better than the covenant that you may have practiced in the Old Testament. He's better than the ministry that the Old Testament gave you. He's better than the hope that you used to cling to. And now Jesus gives you a better hope. He's better than a country that a promised land people were trying to live into. A better covenant shows up again. It's over and over again. You see, Jesus is better than all those things. And then you get to chapter 10, verse 34, and what it says there is, you suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions, that when you come to God, what God gives you is better than anything this world could give you, even the promised land on this earth. If you go back to the screen before that, when you see a list of all those things Jesus is better than, and I think this is so important, I don't have this on the screen, but if you're taking notes, I just want you to write this down. I think the point that Hebrews is getting at, and this, even if it's your first time to engage this book or you hardly know anything about God, listen to this. The problem isn't that they were focusing on these things too much. It's that they were focusing on Jesus too little. I don't think that for these people, it's that they were making too much about all of these, and maybe some of them they were. I don't think it's that they were making too much out of that, it's that they were making too little, too, too little out of Jesus. Because this is a challenge for Hebrews, and it's a challenge for us today too. Is that sometimes we can go throughout our lives, and what we think is this. What is the smallest I need to do to remain a Christian? What's the smallest I need to do to make sure I can go to heaven in the end? And Jesus didn't die and bear sin and rise from the dead for you to live your life thinking, what's the smallest I need to do to make sure I can remain this Christian that God has called me to be? It's how do I live every day of my life in passion and pursuit of who this God is and what he offers? So let me try to walk you through chapter one, four through 14, where Hebrews talks about angels. Uh, because I think a paradigm is being set in chapter one that goes for anything else, not just angels. Now, maybe for some of you in here, I don't think so. Maybe someone in here makes a bigger deal about angels than others. I don't think there are people here who worship angels. But I'll tell you this, there are times where people may come to me and they're like, Josh, 
I have a kid or a loved one and they're, they're driving to college or driving to somewhere. Or we're, tra- we're traveling or uh, will, you pray for, will you just pray for an angel to surround the vehicle? Will you pray for an angel to be with my kid as they go to school? And I don't think it's heretical. Let me just, here, here's kind of where I am. When I pray for Casey and when I pray for Trude and Noah as they go to school every day, my prayer is not for an angel to surround them. My prayer is for the hand of God to be with them. My prayer isn't for an angel to be next to their side. My prayer is for Jesus to be above them, below them, around them, inside of them. And if God chooses through me asking God to care for them, to send angels to protect, I'll let God do that. But I'm going straight for the hand of God and the heart of God, not for angels, all right? Now, Maybe for them in this book, they were making too much of angels. There's some theories that people worship the angel Michael. There's Michael. There's no denying that throughout Scripture, God did speak through angels. But here's, here's how this functions. Chapter 1, verse 4. He became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And now you're going to see, I think, a paradigm that is set in chapter 1 that functions for anything else you want to place in the place of an angel. Anything we may trust in, anything we swear allegiance to, and it goes like this. The first thing that is highlighted is Jesus' name is greater than theirs. So in chapter 1, verse 5, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father, or again I will be his father and he will be my son. Secondly is this, Jesus' dignity is greater than theirs. His name is greater, his dignity is greater. Hebrews 1, 6, and again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. The third thing is Jesus' status is greater than theirs. Hebrews 1, 7 through 12, and I just read right now, 8 through 9, is but about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. And fourthly, Jesus' function is greater than theirs. Because to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who inherit salvation? Jesus' name is greater, dignity is greater, his status is greater, his function is greater. Put Moses in the place of an angel, the same thing is true. Put anything you put your hope in other than Jesus in the place of angels, it's true. His name is greater than anything you swear allegiance to other than Jesus. His dignity is greater, status is greater, his function is greater. Is this making sense at all? And anytime we lose focus of Jesus and we're not putting our eyes on him, we minimize Jesus, which means that we begin following after false allegiances in our lives. It's just the way it works. And the way drifting works or fading away from the center works, is maybe some of you, with the imagery of just drifting, maybe some of you know what it's like to go years where you just fell out of love with God, you weren't pursuing God. I think for most of it, though, it's like a few days go by or a few weeks go by, and you're like, man, I just haven't prayed much, or I haven't prayed at all, or it's been six weeks or six months since I've read my Bible, and I didn't even know it. And what happens whenever we begin to drift, even a little bit, is when a moment of crisis or a struggle comes, we reach for whatever we feel like and give us stability. I remember uh, there was one year at Christmas with my family. We would go to my grandparents' house every Christmas. There were six grandkids. I had a younger cousin 
Uh, and there was one night where the parents used that move on us, like, hey, if you all can go get ready for bed real quick and brush your teeth, we'll let you watch one more show. Or it may have been, go, hurry, get ready for bed, brush your teeth, and you can come and you can uh, open one present before Christmas Day. I can't remember what it was, but we were hurrying because if we could get ready for bed in time, then there was something we were gonna be able to do. So we all, there were a few bathrooms in the house. We're running around. We put our pajamas on. We brush our teeth. We come down. Yeah, my young cousin, he wasn't there. And a few minutes later, he walks in and he's like moving his tongue around his mouth. And he was kind of gagging and something was wrong. Come to find out, he brushed his teeth with Bengay, not with toothpaste. Now, he wouldn't suggest this to anybody, all right? We call poison control. Everything was fine. <laughs> um, but he, he learned a lesson that night, and I don't think he ever repeated that lesson again. Now, I don't think for most of you in this room, you reach for ointment instead of toothpaste. But how many times do we reach to apply something in place thinking it can provide stability and health? We apply the wrong assistance to ongoing struggles in our lives. So when we drift, even just a little bit, what happens is we begin to reach for something and this is how people begin to reach for a bottle or to reach for the pills or to reach for porn or whatever it may be that can give you a sense of worth, happiness, fulfillment, even just a little bit of healing or numbing of pain. So what happened in the book of Hebrews is something that happens now too, is that when we begin to drift even a little bit, we begin to lose our confidence in our confession. And when you lose your confidence and the power of your confession, what happens is, is that Satan begins speaking a lot of lies in that place. Lies about how far you are from where you need to be and should you even work hard enough to get back. Lies that you will never be the parent that you wanted to be. Lies about, about if you're single, you're gonna be lonely. It's because you are, you're not loved and all these lies that come upon us. And whenever that happens, if we're not fixing our eyes on Jesus and we've minimized Jesus and we've lost our center, and these are things we have to take to Jesus and say, these lies are in my heart. Can you tell me if this is true or not? And allow his truth to come over us. The power of confession is huge for Hebrews and it's huge for us. Because we've been fighting something for 15, 1600 years. Because there was a leader in Rome around the fourth century. And it was around that time that Constantine began mandating baptism. So Constantine decides, hey, we're all going to be Christians. So he mandated baptisms. Now, this was a time when there was original sin, which basically meant you were born separated from God. And at the time, infant baptism really took off. And if you were living in those times, there's a good, there's a good chance you would have bought into the theory too. If babies are born distant from God, you want your kids to be in relationship with God. It was mandated. So any baby was baptized and given a certificate of citizenship at the same time. And Christianity has never worked well as the dominating force of any country in the world. It's always done its best work as a grassroots movement from the bottom up. And what happened in Constantine is something the church has been fighting now for almost 1,600 years. Is that it made it possible where people could, could become Christians without ever deciding to live their life pursuing Christ. Where they could become a Christian yet never know Jesus. 
And I talk with people, and some of you who've made decisions before to confess Jesus as the Lord of your life or be baptized into Christ, but what you've shared with me is when you did, it was because you didn't want to go to hell, not because you were making a decision to live for Jesus. Now, God works through a lot of different ways, so I'm not saying those baptisms and those confessions don't take. But what happens whenever we try to live a life as a Christian without pursuing Christ is we end up having these biblical beliefs that we can hold on to, yet we give in to all kind of worldly problems and issues. What happens is we're not passionless people. We're people full of passion and we care about things. But if we care about things and try to have passion for things in the world, yet we're not fixing our eyes on Jesus, we're giving our allegiance to things that don't have eternal value. So the author of Hebrews, the preacher in Hebrews is writing, hey, there is a confession you made for Jesus, to live for Jesus in everything you do. I think the people in Hebrews probably had to deal a little bit with the question of, am I going to have to die one day for Jesus? I think it was on their radar. I think the question they really had to wrestle with was, am I going to live my life for Jesus? It's not, am I going to wake up and die today for Jesus? Is what do I do with this Jesus who they call Christ? I was teaching a um, bunch of teenagers one time early on in my ministry. I was in a room, a bunch of teens, and I said, hey, would anybody here, is there someone you love so much you would die for them? Nobody raised their hand. Which my first response was, you're just a bunch of like heartless people. There's got to be somebody you would die for. Nobody. So I looked at Terry, and Terry was sitting next to his best friend, Markwell. And I said, Terry, I mean, come on, man. Like, would you die for your best friend, Markwell? And Terry looked at me and shrugged his shoulders, and he just said, Josh, friends come and go throughout life. You know, they come and go. But then Terry said, I would die for my mom. I'm like, okay, we got somewhere. We would die for somebody. I think a good question to measure love is, do you love someone so much you would die for them? But I think the better question is do you love someone so much you would live for them? Because I think there are spouses and parents who would die for their kids, but they're not making decisions today to live for their spouses or kids. And I think, like, I'm really blown away how martyrs, how it seemed to be so easy for them early on in Christianity to be burned at the stake or killed by the sword and how they embraced those moments with great joy that they were able to die with Christ. But then it hits me, the reason they were able to die with Christ so easily is because they had made decision after decision after decision to live for Christ. And when you make a decision of confession that you're going to live your life living for Jesus, it makes dying for Jesus a lot easier. So our mission here, that this church is helping people see Jesus. It comes from Luke chapter 19. But Hebrews 12, 1 to 2 comes to mind whenever I think and pray through our vision. Helping people see Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. And the way our mission statement works, helping people see Jesus. If you go to our website and you look at this, when you hear us talk about this, helping people see Jesus in the life of the Sycamore View Church doesn't come with a footnote or an end note or a caveat or exceptions. If there's anybody who has just a small desire to move a little closer to Jesus, we want to be a church who comes alongside of you, alongside of other people, to help us live into the confession that we want Jesus to be the Lord of our lives. And anytime we, are, we, we miss this as a church, if we've ever missed it with you, that we have not assisted in helping you, you see Jesus, we repent and we say we are sorry because this is something we want to do better. We want to help people see Jesus. Because anytime we minimize Jesus, we lose our focus, we lose our life, we drift away. We don't want to be this for each other. We don't want to be this for the world. 
and and, and committing to helping people see Jesus reminds us of whose kingdom is being built. And the kingdom that's being built is Jesus' kingdom. The kingdom that the Sycamore View Church is trying to build is not Josh Ross's kingdom or the elders at Sycamore View's kingdom or the minister's kingdom or your kingdom. It's Jesus' kingdom. And Jesus' kingdom is extending an invitation to people who have never known Jesus to come running into his arms because he is ready to receive you and extending an invitation to everyone who has made a confession for Jesus before that there is a salvation to live into, a confession to take seriously in every moment of our lives. And let's see what fruit will come from that this week. I want to ask the elders and prayer leaders, if you will, go around the room to receive people. We've set up four tables today. There are two kind of there in the middle section to my right and two to the left. And there are times those are there every Sunday for you. And there are times it's just real generic. There are times they'll just have prayers to the people. And you can drop any prayer request in there. And we take those and we pray over them during the week. And today there's a specific question in there. Jesus is greater than, and it's just a blank. And we've left that for you in this time as we sing and we move around. If there's anything you need to go fill in that blank, is it confession? Maybe it's a form of repentance. Maybe it's a declaration in your life. If it's something we can pray for for you, we would love to. You can leave your name on it. You can leave it anonymous. Jesus is greater than any person we trust in other than Jesus. He's greater than anything we may trust in. Jesus is greater. So we stand today and we sing this song. Feel free to make your way around the room.